Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode of Kitchen Club is kindly sponsored by our friends at Nemo Travel. Think of Nemo as your personal travel guru, someone you can talk to about your passions and interests, someone who'll take this on board and find unique places to stay and experiences just for you. I am sure we are all desperate for a holiday after a very tough year on the travel front. Nemo are here to help give you something to look forward to. So whether you want to go all out and jet off to the Seychelles or plan a remote detox in the Scottish Highlands, they'll be there every step of the way, providing expert travel advice and reassurance, which we know is so, so important during these times of uncertainty. Nemo very kindly helped book mine and my husband's honeymoon to Puglia last summer, which was totally last minute. And with the rules changing constantly about where was and wasn't safe to visit, it was a total godsend to have their insider knowledge and support in booking our dream trip. Their trips are also designed with sustainable practices, authentic experiences and local empowerment in mind. So wherever you go, you'll feel fully immersed in the true culture of your chosen destination. To find out more about Nemo and how they can provide stress-free, caring travel, head to nemo-travel.com or visit them on Instagram at wearenemotravel. Thanks for sponsoring us, Nemo. Happy travels! Hello and welcome back to Kitchen Club with me, Serena Lau, and my babe of a friend, Sarah Malcolm. Kitchen Club is the weekly podcast that brings you conversations from the kitchen table. Each week we have a brilliant new guest, a new area of expertise to get stuck into, and a new recipe which is created using our guests' three favourite ingredients. Today's guest is the brilliant Sophie Whippy, a birth doula and founder of Nave. Sophie's work focuses on the rightful need for women to be informed and supported through all of life's important milestones. Nave aims to open up the conversation on women's health from an honest and unbiased perspective, from first period to menopause and everything in between. I'm pretty gutted that I wasn't able to join in for this episode, if I'm honest, Serena. Um, I had crippling period pains and 
I was saying to Serena, oh, I've got such bad pains. And she was saying, I'll just do the podcast. And as much as I wanted to do it, I kept thinking of Vianney Lee telling me to rest and honor my period cycle. So Serena took the reins for this one. And as I've edited it, I can assure you it is a really, really beautiful chat. Yeah, we really missed having you there, but it was also quite nice being able to just ask every single question that I wanted and have Sophie's full attention because she is amazing. So if you guys are enjoying season four so far, we'd really love it if you could help share our podcast with your loved ones, leave us a review, maybe share on your Instagram stories which episodes you've been enjoying. It really, really helps us spread the word and we are eternally grateful to for your support. So here is the wonderful Sophie Whippy on Kitchen Club. Oh, so welcome, Sophie. Thank you so much for joining us. To- well, joining me, joining me today. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's lovely to meet you. We have wanted to chat to you for so long, so we're really excited to have you on. And for everybody listening, it is just me today, just Serena, because poor Sarah is not feeling very well. So it's it's a real first. Um, let's start, why don't we, with your three favourite ingredients. Can you remember what they were? Oh my goodness. I'm like, a quick pull up my email. <laughs> Hang on. I definitely said chickpeas. Mm-hmm. nobody nobody ever seems to remember so don't worry about it <laughs> oh my goodness hang on let me find it let me find it ah chickpeas I was there Lavna and quinoa delicious and is there any particular yeah. reason why you love those three do you know what I think I quite I really like carb carby food <laughs> um and I find chickpeas kind of satiate that grounding energy Lavna is like my favorite thing in the world my husband makes it himself at home we when we, we when we used to live in London we'd go to the local food market and um, I remember my and it was owned by a Turkish family and my husband was like where can I buy Lavna and he just looked at him like he was crazy and he was like you don't buy it you make it <laughs> like why why would you ever buy Lavna so he's been making it himself and he does this amazing dish with Lavna chickpeas and um, courgettes and mint and it's just amazing mm. so Lavna is a firm fave also on toast with honey um Yum. and quinoa again because I'm I love carbs I like grounding foods um I could literally live off them all the time so yeah yeah I love brain. that you are a girl after my own heart because I also am obsessed with carbs I love bread <laughs> and I love pasta yeah. and I love potatoes yeah. And I feel like we're not meant to love carbs. I feel like... I know. I feel They've like... They've such a bad rap, haven't they? Yes. Nobody eats carbs anymore. And actually, they're like the most delicious thing ever. Yeah. Um, I yeah. saw someone post on Instagram yesterday a picture of like a big baguette and butter and it said carbs is my love language. And I was like, oh my God, yes. Yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. If I don't have a carbohydrate with my meal, I will definitely feel hungry like an hour and a half later. I'll be snacking on something else, trying to get that extra kind of fill in so yeah carbohydrates are a staple yeah I completely agree so your recipe that we created was I think maybe my favorite kitchen club recipe we've ever made how exciting I can't wait I'm like can I write it down (laughs) we'll send you the recipe afterwards (laughs) but when um it was funny because when I was doing it I was like where can I buy Labna where can I buy Labna and I was like shit well no one near me sells it I'm gonna make it and I've never made it before which 
I feel like I should have done because I love cooking, but it was really fun making it. So simple. You just like mix yeah. a bit of salt with the yogurt, hang it for 24 hours. Yeah. And it, I've it got looks some like hanging in my kitchen right now, like my husband did some yesterday. And it is so simple. Like, I, yeah, it's good. It's a good one. And it looks kind of gross when it's hanging. You like hang it in a piece of muslin and it like drips into a bowl. It's really gross. But God, it's delicious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Thank it you for that. <laughs> you've, you've introduced me to a new thing because I don't normally like yogurt, but I think that's yummy. So we made you labna with slow roasted cherry tomatoes with pine nuts and balsamic and olive oil and then quinoa and chickpea falafel with loads of herbs. And actually the falafel are so good with quinoa in it because it gives it a bit more texture and a bit more crunch. So again, like I've, you've really converted me. I would never normally make it like that, but I love that it. Sounds- amazing that sounds so good please can you give the listeners a little introduction to you to Nave, the work that you do um I know you talk a lot about real talk with women's health and I'm wondering like what that means to you and why that's mm. an important message for you to be sharing with everybody else sure so um well I started Nave a couple of years ago now um but prior to that I'd already been working as a birth doula um, so birth doula for not everyone always kind of knows what it is. <laughs> so for those of you that might not understand what it is, a birth doula or a doula is a sort of an emotional support person. Um, and some doulas work in birth, some doulas work in death, um, abortion, loss. Um, and a birth doula specifically, my role in, in that uh, area is to support the birthing person and their family or partner. So that might be um, in a very practical sense. It's often in an emotional sense. Um, I offer them facts-based information. It's sort of another another helping hand, really, in any way that you possibly could need. Um, So I started working as a birth leader uh, four or five years ago now. And then that kind of evolved from a hobby that I would say, I just do it on the side to actually me being quite busy and really, really seeing the need that um, people need support in in this transition. Um, And when I started to want to expand it from being sort of something I did on the side to actually a, a company, which still weirds me out, (laughs) but you know, a thing, um, it really, I started to really draw on all of my experiences as a woman. Um, and also my experiences working in yoga. So myself and my husband have a yoga studio. We've had it for nine years. Um, and I've really grown up alongside the yoga studio and sort of the experiences I've had in my life have been running alongside having the studio and and having an ever-expanding community of people and what I had come to see and what I feel really strongly about is that actually as women we move through these massive transitions in our lives whether it be menarche and puberty or um, pregnancy loss all the way up to menopause and there isn't actually that much support for these huge milestones that we move through. And I, I feel like there's a bit of a culture like, well, we, we, we get pregnant, we have the baby, we move on. Or we start our periods, we become women and we move on. You know, we've lost the ceremony, we've lost the ritual and the celebration behind these huge 
milestones. Um, but not only that, that these milestones change us intrinsically from our, our physicality changing our you know when we become pregnant the way that our brain responds to the world changes so where's the support for the change that happens in between them not only the milestones but the you know the entire journey in between so when I through working as a doula as a birth leader I started to see this disconnect in people and some medical providers in that it's you know it's a very cut and dry you come in you have your baby you go home you're done well hey you've done it you know and actually it just felt so disconnected from life you know our life events don't happen in isolation to anything else everything is interconnected we are all interconnected and to to try and isolate all of these events it just doesn't work and it leaves people massively under supported so when I was speaking with um, the company that actually helped me come up with the branding for Nave, and I was trying to explain to them, and I had this all this stuff in my head, and I was like, oh, it's like you know, it's like a big web that catches people. That's what I see it as. An, it's like an ecosystem um, where we can support someone through any transition from all different angles. So whether that be emotional, physical, spiritual, sexual, all of this is connected. Whether it's whether we're approaching menopause, perimenopause, or whether we're having a baby, all of these things come into play. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a massive web of support. That's how I see it, or an ecosystem. And I connect with um, other professionals in their relevant fields um, to kind of support people through that. But um, the reason that Real Talk, I feel, is so important <laughs> is because I think we often shy away from talking about things that can feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, referring into a birthing environment, we're given the, the cream on the top of the bottle. That, that amount of information is what we're actually given. And it's often not the whole story. Um, and I think just being plain with our language, it doesn't mean being insensitive but being plain with it, not dancing around things, being able to talk about labia and vulvas and that that's okay, <laughs> like nothing, I'm not going to get struck down, you know, nothing bad's going to happen. Um, and encouraging that openness to try and shed any shame or judgment or a feeling of taboo around our bodies and what we do with them and how they change. Um through Nave, I, I, through sort of my journey, I guess I then started to work in sex education and trained to do sex ed with kids. And I've been working um, in two schools here in Ibiza, where I live, um, at the moment, working with kids aged five to thirteen in different age groups. And just, you know, when we talk to them, or when I talk to them about body parts, the younger kids are like, "Yeah, that's what it is." You know, there's no embarrassment or shame around it. And then you speak to the older kids and they've absorbed all of this conditioning that says it's not okay to talk about our bodies. Um, and I just think that's really sad because then we as adults definitely carry that into our life experiences. And when we go through these massive physical changes like menopause, you know, there isn't, there is a, still a lot of stigma around it. We don't talk about it. We don't celebrate it. And it is a celebratory time. It's moving into the next stage of life you know who doesn't want to become the all-knowing crone at some point in their life um 
so yeah that's a really long winded explanation but that's kind of that's where Nave is at at the moment with everything that's awesome and the sex ed thing is something that I've already I've got a couple of questions for but we'll save that till later because I think that's fascinating um the doula thing, like personally, I've been fascinated by doulas for a very long time because I feel like in the olden days, that was probably more how it was, right? Whereas these days, birth's been very medicalized. And as you say, like conversation around periods and menopause and stuff has kind of been hushed under the carpet. Like I'm sure for a lot of people, their first experience of having their period was kind of being sneakily handed a tampon and like, that's that, don't talk about it. Um, yeah. And we chatted to last week, we had Ella Mills on the podcast and she was telling us all about her birth experiences with hypnobirthing and stuff. And I think it's really exciting that people are starting to talk about it and are starting to, to have those conversations rather than, you know, being embarrassed that they're having a hot flush because they're having their menopause and they don't want anyone at the party to know. Mm, yeah, it is. It's great that there's progress and that there's conversations around this stuff because we're all moving through it. You know, it, we may not have exactly the same journey, but we are all human. And if we're people that menstruate and people that have babies, then we're going to have things in common. So why can we not share that? Mm. You know? And it's like, we've been taught that a lot of that bodily stuff is gross when it's not, it's the most natural stuff that your body could possibly do. It's just exactly. the like conditioning we've received, I guess, and the way society looks at it, that you need products to wash and you need products to hide and products to cover things up. Yeah. And I think a lot of that though is to do with the way that, um, I did a class. It just reminded me, I did a class, uh, at the school last week and it was around body images and stereotypes and editing of images. And we looked at the history of how body, um, body types have changed and what was deemed desirable and we looked at sort of the history of hair removal and a lot of these expectations are filtered down through media you know they're not realistic expectations that people should be putting on their bodies or themselves but it is what we absorb um as masses you know and when you you said about um doulaing and how it, it that's how it kind of used to be done with birth absolutely right it used to be all of the the women in the village or in your village would come round, and they would sit in the room next door or in the corner of the room and they would just sit and chat it was a really joy-filled environment and the women would be laboring and um I think they were called god sits and that's where the the root of the word gossip comes from because they would sit and discuss and and just be there having banter basically <laughs> um you know and then the medicalization came in which is so fantastic in some instances it's absolutely necessary um but it it isn't the savior but it has completely wiped out the i don't know i guess the kind of um the way of viewing birth as a natural occurrence, not a medical event. You know, birthing people aren't sick. They're not patients. They're not unwell. <laughs> they're bloody powerful. <laughs> but when we medicalize it, we then put them in the seat of the patient. Mm. Um, yeah, it's gotten a little bit squiffed in my opinion. Yeah. And of course, when there are problems or if, you know, it's a complicated pregnancy, then that's amazing that medicine can help with that. But I, I always, I don't want to reduce 
laboring women to dogs but I think about like if you leave a pregnant <laughs> dog alone it can just have puppies on its own most of the time it knows what it's doing it gets on with it and that's that mm. and I think that, you know uh, you know, yeah not to compare pregnant women with dogs <laughs> but actually you know we people do birth um in a smoother way I guess when they are left alone that's why skills like hypnobirthing are so um, useful because they allow the birthing person to drop into what's going on for them and not be um, bothered about the exterior or not as affected by the exterior. Yeah, it's so interesting. I think I was saying to Ella last week, like I, I really hope that one day I get to experience it and because I think the whole thing is just incredible what your body can do. Um, mm. Being a mother yourself, has that really shaped the path that you've taken or do you think that women's health and, and supporting women has always, always been something that you've known is for you? No, it definitely hasn't. It's, um, I used to work, I worked in fashion, went to fashion university, worked in fashion straight out of university for quite a few years. And then actually it was when I became pregnant, I was working at a creative agency and um, it was really demanding of time. Um, and when I became pregnant with my eldest, so this was in, I became pregnant in 2012. Um, I just kind of, this, this switch just flicked and I was like, I don't want to be in this environment when I have a baby because it doesn't feel right. Um, and I knew that I wouldn't be able to give my working environment the energy that I was currently giving it um, without, um, without compromising on my ability to, to be a mother. And I really, you know, I didn't want to have to do that. So, um, I didn't, yeah, I didn't, didn't know that I'd always work in women's health, but I think it, this journey has evolved with me becoming a mum. Um, when I had my eldest, I was 25. So I was quite young. I was the first of all my friends. Um, and it was an absolute, I felt like I'd been hit by a bus. Like I had no idea what was happening <laughs> to myself physically mentally emotionally I was like a complete mess a very happy mess but a complete mess um and that really spurred me into finding out more about birth and I did my yoga teacher training when my son was one and um and we myself and my husband had just opened our studio so he was already a teacher and I was kind of the admin behind it and then I did my TT and um, and then following that, a friend of ours wanted to host her pregnancy teacher training at our studio in London. So I said, well, yeah, of course, can I come along and take it? Because why not? You know, it'd be really interesting. And she was actually, or she is a doula. And I learned about a doula in that pregnancy training. And I was like, oh my God, this is what I needed when I was pregnant. I needed someone to guide me and be there for me and, and help me in a way that, um, that at the time my partner couldn't it was his first time as well he also felt like he'd been hit by a bus I'm sure um and the medical world didn't allow for the support or information actually that I needed um and I didn't know that it even existed so in hindsight I was like my goodness that's exactly what I needed and it really I was like I need to do this so I you know and I, I just started to feel so strongly that actually this is something that people need and when you have a baby you have so many decisions to make like about their health about everything about their entire lives so I started to research everything and just kind of got deeper into research around um about around medical protocols and the way that women have been historically treated in pregnancy and birth and 
how that shifts culturally depending on where you are and just started doing loads of research and then when I became a doula and I started working with women it, it evolves because you see firsthand where people have been dropped or where that support has dropped for them and you start to kind of see this web where the holes are like okay this is what this is what this person needed well, why you know why did they have that approach and I'm really interested in I guess psychology and and our conditioning and how that affects us and um I've started training in a facilitation called Imago therapy um and all of this just kind of worked together I think from my life experiences of just working with people and 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 seeing where where the gaps are and also where I've needed support you know where did I feel that I wasn't being held and what was missing and why did I feel when I was younger that I couldn't ask questions to my care provider, you know, and just starting to sort of put the dots together and, and here I am today. And I'm sure I'll keep going, to be honest. There's still things I'm like, oh, I want to learn about this. I want to know that. And oh, what about that? You know, and I think that Nave will evolve with me as I get older and, and grow. Hmm. And I'm sure that different people need different kinds of support as they go through their pregnancy and their labor and postpartum is there is there a pattern that you see of like what it is that people need the most I think what people fundamentally need the most is to feel heard mm-hmm. um that I think that's the biggest thing that actually in in the birth world um people don't often feel heard and sometimes that can be the trigger between having a traumatic or a non-traumatic birth um language is everything um and when people are told that they have to do something or we're going to do this to you or you need to do that it takes away someone's autonomy it takes away their power so I think you know the biggest thing that actually a doula can do is to provide that space for someone to be heard and to be able to empathize with how they're feeling doesn't mean that they shouldn't take a medical recommendation or, you know, that it has to go any which way. But the fact is that when someone is heard and given the space to come to a conclusion that they're happy with, that is the tipping point or can be the tipping point between a traumatic experience and not having one. So Um, I suppose then often you find yourself being the mediator between the medical team and the couple or the woman giving birth. Yeah. Yeah. Often, very often. Um, it's, I think it's having, obviously a doula provides continuity of care as well. So I will work with people throughout their pregnancy or whatever time they engage with me and we'll have regular contact until after they've had their baby. Whereas in most scenarios, if you are going into a hospital or even having a home birth, you may not have met the midwives or obstetricians, definitely not the obstetricians, but you may not have met the, the care providers that are are there for you so it gives a doula the opportunity to form that relationship and it gives me the opportunity to see the dynamic between the birthing person and her partner that's really important because I know what each of their needs are I can see when one of them needs to be supported or when the other one needs to step out it's being able to read that that relationship um but it also gives me the opportunity to know how they've come to the point that they're in, whether they've had previous loss, whether they've had previous trauma, whether they've had a traumatic birth or sexual trauma from when they were younger, um, whether they're just terrified of being in medical environments or whether actually a medical environment makes them feel really safe. You know, I get to, I get to be privy to all of this 
backlog of information and form a relationship with people that a lot of care providers won't have had the opportunity to do. So then they're coming in and it's, it's another patient, you know, and that I have huge amounts of respect for midwives and obstetricians. And I have many mid, uh, friends who are midwives, but in a busy working environment, they don't have the same time to build that relationship that a doula does. Um, I think that's really important. The continuity and the trust that you build helps me then navigate between the medical recommendation and my, my client's wishes and how we can explore, you know, well, what are your options in this? And I can never give medical advice and I never would, but I can be an advocate and I can help them come to a conclusion or a decision that they're happy with. Yeah. And I'm guessing that's, yeah, as you say, that is the most important thing because when you're giving birth, that's like the most vulnerable you've ever been. That's also probably the most scared a lot of people have ever been. And so to be in a room full of strangers, apart from hopefully yeah. having your partner there, if you have one, is is quite terrifying. So to have somebody who's been with you through the journey and who knows what you need and knows what you want and can stand up for you if you're doubting yourself or feel like you're not being heard, then that's really amazing. Yeah, it's it's the most incredible thing. Like I have yet to attend a birth, and then every time I leave, I just like have this massive cry because it's just so it's so overwhelming and it's so powerful to see life being brought into the world and and to witness the birthing person just in their power is just incredible it's um it's such a privilege to be invited into that space with people um yeah it's amazing it's absolutely amazing and I'm sure this is different depending on which doctors which, which hospital and things but in general how are doulas received by medical professionals you're smiling when I say that. Does that mean it's... <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, like for the most part, received, re I have personally been received very well. Uh -huh. I think there's, um. so again, it's a relationship, right? You've got the medical professionals and we call the medical professionals, but they are, they are people, you know, and, and they, and this is what I say to my clients as well. They want the same outcome that we want. We're not on opposite teams. We all want the same outcome, which is a happy, healthy baby and a happy, healthy mum. And our ways of going about getting to that endpoint may be slightly different, but we're, we're going, we're rooting in the same direction. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've only ever had one circumstance where I wasn't, um, very well received and an obstetrician was just really, really rude to me. Um, because I'd asked a question that my client had asked and kind of been shushed away. And I was like, oh, but actually I think she needs to understand X, Y, Z. And he was like, I'm not talking to you, you know? Oh and then at one point I got asked to leave the room and I was, <laughs> but I would like to also state that that wasn't because I was sticking my fingers in. It was because he didn't want anyone questioning what he was doing. And, and in my opinion, that was a real white coat sort of savior moment of what well, I'm here and I can deliver the baby so everyone else be quiet you know including to my client who had a very traumatic birth it, you know it led to trauma and um a good amount of time after that she needed to process what had happened and where the twists and turns had led her and why um but, you know, 99% of the time, I've, I've always had good relationships with the medical care providers that have been present. Um, 
I've, I've gotten to know a lot of them. Obviously, I've moved country now. So, but um, when I was in London, a lot of the midwives at Homerton, which was my local hospital, would know me. They'd see me sleeping on the benches and triage and waiting for clients. And, you know, and, and they were wonderful, really supportive. And actually, one obstetrician at Homerton in particular, and I remember it was just so amazing to have this relationship with someone. My client had had a very long labor and uh, we had, I had been sent home for a few hours to get some sleep and her partner was asleep on the armchair in the room. And every, we'd had like, we had a few hours of a breather right before anything sort of kick, started kicking off again. And when I came back to the hospital, the obstetrician was leaving. We, we crossed in the hallway and she was like, oh, thank God you're here. She's there. Go do your thing. And it was just like the nicest thing to receive that from someone in a position of authority, you know, and the recognition that actually a doula has value and we we have value in that space. And that was really wonderful. Yeah, recognition was the word that was just on my mind. And I think it sounds so valuable. And I think that if I ever have a baby... I like having spoken to you and having spoken to Ella last week, I'm like, oh my God, I want to do hypnobirthing yeah. and I need a doula, all the support you can get. Um, yeah. Last little question about doulaing. I'm just, what do you call it doulaing? I don't know. Who knows? Like That sounds weird. <laughs> I know. It's really odd. I don't know. Doulard? Doulaing? Doula, yeah, why well, not? Um, I wonder how that impacts you as a human who needs sleep and a mother who has children who need looking after and a husband who, or a partner who needs to have time spent with you. How does that like fit into your life? Yeah. So it's quite, um, it's really demanding. It's a really demanding role emotionally and time-wise and physically. Um, I will not take on more than one client a month for an in-person attendance. For for one client, you're on call for four to five weeks around their due date, mm-hmm. which means that in that time frame, I have to be able to drop everything and reach that person when they when they go into labour. Um, so with two kids, that's quite a juggle, especially because my husband travels a lot with work or has historically travelled a lot with work. Um, yeah, it's really demanding. My husband's amazing. He, you know, we we kind of work together. If he's got to travel, then I know that I can't take on a client or. I can take on a client and make it very clear that for the, this week, I can't be available, but my backup can be. So if, if that's the case, I'll always try and partner with another doula. So they would be my backup if for anything, you know, any reason I couldn't be there. Um, with the kids, it's quite tricky. My youngest is two and a half. He's coming up to three. And I started doulaing again. I think I took a little bit of time off to have him. I attended a handful of births whilst I was pregnant, which is really cool, actually, to be in a similar sort of space. Um, and I took a bit of time off, I think 10 months once he was born. And then I started doodling again. And I, you know, some labors I've been at, I've been back and forth for three or four days. Um, so that, it, yeah, it's, it's pretty intense with your time, but he, he's actually been fine. My husband's really swooped in. And I remember one birth, my mum came up because my husband had to work. So my mum traveled up. It really does, you know, <laughs> the saying it takes a village to have a child. Is absolutely true. Probably takes two villages to have enough support. But to be a doula, a working doula with children also takes a village. Um, I've had really close friends um, in London. I've had them on call for me. (laughs) So when my husband's been traveling and I've said, look, I've got a client. If she goes into labor, can I call you in the middle of the night? Will you come and get into bed with my baby? (laughs) Because I'm going to need to go to the birth. And 
and you know I'm really lucky that I've got that support network um or I had that support network in London building it slowly here but um yeah it takes a village takes a village to be a dealer and it takes two villages to be a parent (laughs) (laughs) so you basically always have to be with your phone on well slept make sure you've eaten something in case you're about to go to the hospital for eight hours yeah so I pack a birth bag um, I have my, you know, a client packs their birth yeah. bag. I pack my birth bag. It's got a spare charger. It's got some essential oils. It's got a hot water bottle. It's got a birth ball, a yoga mat, snacks, water, all of the stuff that I might need to be at a birth for 36 hours or, you know. And then sleep-wise, I'm I'm actually really lucky. I can literally sleep anywhere at the drop of a hat. So I've slept on hospital benches. I've slept in hospital chairs, you know, caught up wherever I can in little bits and bobs. Um, but that's also where, you know, if, if you're attending a birth and there's a birth partner as well, you're a team. The three of you are working together. And when the partner may need sleep, I can kick in. If I need a few hours sleep, they can kick in. And it's that it's the same saying as, you know, when you become a parent, you can't uh, pour from an empty cup. So, yeah, if I'm on call for a birth, it's early night no alcohol, good food, make sure that I'm not maxing myself out at any given day so that I have the energy if and when I'm called um, and having a, a bit of backup and support on on call for me as well. It's quite a big ordeal, isn't it? Now yeah. I'm looking out, I'm like, oh, that's quite a lot. <laughs> you must be like the most prepared woman ever, but it's incredible. <laughs> I don't like, I don't know many people who could do that, I don't think. So I yeah. think... Yeah. yeah, it's very imp- like it's very impressive I think to have the capacity to look after your family and then to be there for the women you're working with and it's a lot. Yeah, and it yeah, it is and it can feel like sometimes it's it's a juggle but the reward of of, of being there and um seeing that person birth their baby is is more than worth it. And then afterwards, I always go home, have a chocolate bar and get into bed. (laughs) I saw you share something on Instagram the other day and I can't remember the wording, but you had been to a sex ed class at school and some of the kids had asked you some questions, which were kind of sweet and kind of funny, but also quite shocking that they didn't know the answers. And I can't think of any examples, so I don't want to guess them. Some of the things that they come out with is shocking and sometimes hilarious and really sweet. Yeah, I remember thinking some of them were funny and some of them I was like, oh my God. Yeah. So I I think I know the answer to this question, but presumably you're not a fan of like pee-pee and nunu as names for vaginas and willies. And oh, I just did it myself. I just said willies. Yeah. <laughs> it's so ingrained, isn't it? Sorry, penises. It is. Penis. Penises. It is. <laughs> it's, um, no, I'm not. And the reason I'm not is because one in four children will be sexually abused when they are grown up. Um, and if a child, if we unconsciously are saying to a child, well, you can't call it a penis, it's your willy, right? It's, it's this childlike friendly term that we don't talk about and no, you can't touch it and no, we can't see it. And it's secretive, right? Mm-hmm. If they are then put in a compromising position where someone is taking that same tact of like, this is our secret, we don't tell anyone, it's just a willy, blah, blah, blah. How are they then supposed to know what is right or wrong? You know, we so often, children are so often told, you're okay, don't worry. You know, if if a child's crying, you're fine, up you get. That's minimizing their response 
it's minimizing their feeling. And then we take away the power of language and being able to correctly name their anatomy. And, and we minimize their feelings when they hurt themselves or when they're upset or, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of all the examples with my son. He's in a real tantrum age at the moment. And it's that constant negotiation between I understand, I empathize, that you're feeling very frustrated, but I also need you to get in the car because we need to go to school. Um, <laughs> so, you know, but children don't have a lot of power, right? They don't get to make that many decisions for themselves. They are kind of, um, their life is, is, is laid out day to day by their care providers. And to give children power, to, to give them their own power and to be able to give them their own language and to validate their feelings and validate their intuition about things is the biggest gift that we can give them. And it's also a huge safeguarding tool for them. Um, and, it, you know, it's been proven in other countries. I just wrote an article for Inc. magazine, Inc. Pub publication about um, my article is called Do You Nunu, actually. So it's funny that you said Nunu. Because I'd written um, the question and then I saw the article yeah, on your Instagram yeah. and I was like, shit, there we go. There's my answer. Yeah. It's, you know, it's in, in uh, especially in Nordic countries, they are taught the correct language of their anatomy. And you then see that uh, down the line in lower rates of sexual abuse lower rates of abortion, lower rates of sexual assault as adults. Wow. And I'm not saying it's down to that singular thing, but it's an approach that we have to our to the education that we give young people. Um, I don't want my children growing up feeling ashamed of their bodies or that they can't communicate to their parents about how they're feeling or what they're going through. Um, and I think, yeah, you know, <clears throat> I always think of it as if, if we want to see less people having traumatic births or less um, sexual assault rates, less, uh, I don't know, abuse and trauma on all people, but especially minorities, then that starts with children. How do we educate them from the best of our ability to um, move forward in their life with those tools That's it's it so interesting I've never looked at it that way I've never really thought about it like that because at a glance calling it your fanny feels very sweet and inoffensive and unproblematic um so I can't believe that I did it to you and said Willie but then <laughs> no not at all like I still do it you know I still my littlest at the moment he's in a real phase of playing with his willy because all little boys do um and I say you know I just did like you're playing with your willy and what are you doing blah, 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 blah. But, um especially with the older kids that I'm teaching it's all anatomically correct terms and I do you know my littlest knows that it's called a penis as well he can say both and stuff and yeah it's just really important I really think it is and and a lot of parents aren't comfortable with it um, and, and that comes down to their own discomfort with sexuality, in my opinion, not to upset anyone, but to be, to me, that's where the root of that discomfort is. Um, but it is, it's power, it's a powerful gift that we can give our children to be able to advocate for themselves as they grow up in the world. And hopefully by teaching our children that we're also giving ourselves the opportunity to like decondition some of the stuff we've learned about sex and our bodies and the way we feel mm. about our sexuality. Yeah, definitely. And, I'm, you know, I don't think anyone is like uh, 
completely broken free of the conditioning that I think a lot of sex educators, especially, you know, I think a lot of their work is when, as they move through it themselves, these are how these things come to light, right? That That's how these conversations are started because of someone's experience. Mm. Have you read Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski? No. Oh my God. I've just finished it and it's amazing. It's fascinating. She's awesome. And it's all about like non, like, I don't want to use sciencey words so people don't know what I'm talking about, but basically like the things we've been taught about sexuality and how that affects our sexual sex lives and how it affects Mm. the way we relate to our sexual partners. And it's just brilliant. It's yeah. so good. Um, yeah, that does sound amazing. I'm going to have to write that down. <laughs> yeah, let me know what you think when you've read it. I wish yeah. that we had more time to talk about sex education, but I know you have got to go. So just final question. Yeah. Do you remember what your healthy habit was? <gasps> I do because I backtracked on it. <laughs> I remember emailing you and then I was like, no. Um, so since we moved to Ibiza last year, I've been swimming in the sea every day. And I've actually sort of, it's dropped off a little bit weirdly as the weather's gotten warmer. Um, but all through the winter, I was getting in the sea every day and that completely kept me grounded and sane. Um, it's like medicine. It's, you know, you go into cold water, you come out completely cleansed. It's like, okay, clear vision. Um, so yeah, sea swimming or cold water, actually. The pool, our pool is now colder than the sea. Um, so that's my go-to at the moment. But um, yeah, sea swimming. And then I remember my first email to you was sort of trying to take care of myself with two kids and working and a working husband. Um, and it's, it, I read it back and it just sounded so sad, but it is true that kind of taking care of myself, making sure that I have nice products. Um, and I, it sounds so basic, but taking the time. I know if any mums are listening, you're going to totally get this. <laughs> but to everyone else, it might just sound a bit desperate. <laughs> um but taking the time to like wash and cleanse my face and put a nice moisturizer on or once a week putting a mask on or using retinol to try and get rid of all my lines or you know anything you don't have any lines oh I do beautiful skin <laughs> I've got two kids I've barely slept in eight years definitely got some lines oh my goodness um, <laughs> but um yeah little things like that taking the time to look after myself sometimes that's having 15 minutes in the bathroom by myself with the door closed and no child in there like heaven (laughs) sometimes it's having a cup of coffee in the sunshine at the weekend and not sort of rushing out of the door to get everyone up and dressed and school and all of that you know um but if not sea swim sea swim cures all yeah completely I went for Mm. my um I went for a cold water swim this morning just before this that's why I've got wet hair so yeah I love it Brockwell Lido Mm, lovely it's my weekly treat and I'm obsessed but I also I literally love you carbs (laughs) self-care and cold water swimming like yes those are my (laughs) favorite things no you're not I guess you're like you're like my dream best friend it's not a cliche (laughs) at all I just need to move to Ibiza and then I'll be happy Come. Ibiza's <laughs> great. Very welcoming. <laughs> um, thank you so, so much for your time today. I know Sarah is going to be so gutted not to have been here and met you and chatted to you, but I really can't thank you enough. Well, it's my total pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's really lovely chatting to you. I am gutted, Serena. I am. I was editing this episode and 
I wanted to butt in like I usually do and waffle on about something weird, but it was actually so, so lovely to just be a listening participant on that episode. I thought Sophie was so wonderful and so eloquent. And I also wish that she was around to teach me sex education when I was younger. And it's so, so great that it is becoming more of a nurtured subject and not just a random teacher that's forced to do it who doesn't want to do it, which was the case in my school. I don't know if yours was the same, Serena. Completely. It's always like a random math teacher teaching you to yeah. put condoms on a banana. <laughs> I actually really wish we'd had more time to chat to Sophie about sex ed because I feel like there was so much more there that we could have gone into. So we'll have to persuade her to come back on another time. Mm. And Serena, well done you for, for doing that all by yourself. I'm very proud of you. You don't even need me now. I can just bug her off. Thanks, though. It must have been really weird for you listening and like not being there, being like, wait, this is my podcast. What are you doing? But yeah, we missed you. If you guys would like the recipe, and I'm telling you, you do, because it was a really bloody good one, then please head over to Instagram at Kitchen Club Podcast and give us a follow. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please do share the episode, subscribe, leave a comment. We are so grateful for all your help getting the word out. Mm. We really do appreciate you all for listening. So a big, big thank you. And now I'm off to train in becoming a doula so I can be there for you, Serena, because I think that's all you want from, from friends now. That makes it sound like I'm pregnant. <laughs> I'm not. I am not. <laughs> but yes, doula training sounds great. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.